It's Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Just another episode. I'm doing well. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited about today's episode, actually. Um, I get yeah. to uh, bitch about the PMC and their relation to forced, <laughs> needless, unproductive meetings, which we all get dragged into. You have mm-hmm. an excellent segment on Bolivia. I'm really looking forward to that. And then later in the show, the legendary Professor Richard D. Wolf joins us. I have uh, a lot to be grateful for when it comes to uh, Professor Wolf. Because of yeah. him, um, my husband has learned quite a bit about socialism, and mm. uh, that has saved me from having to talk about politics <laughs> after I spend my entire day talking about politics. So it's been uh, really helpful for our household. Uh, but we're going to talk about... A lot, including uh, the possibility of Bernie Sanders serving in Biden's cabinet as labor secretary. Does that make sense or would it be better for him to remain in the Senate where he could be the chairman of two incredibly important committees? Uh, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say about that. And Nando, so far, you and I seem to have a little bit of a disagreement on that. But who knows? Bitter bitter feud. Mm, So bitter. So bitter. And then our salt segment. uh, We're going to dunk on the CIA. (laughs) <laughs> Probably, yeah. right? Um, insane story in GQ that we're going to um, basically uh, dismantle for you guys. Uh, yeah. It's insane. Anyway, yeah. uh, but with that said, uh, I thought for our uh, banter today, we can discuss the debate that happened mm-hmm. uh, between, of course, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is the final presidential debate. And, um, you know, it, it's just really interesting to see how doesn't matter who really won the debate. If you're a Republican, you're going to say that Trump won. If you're a Democrat, you're going to say that Biden won. I don't know. I just feel like these debates, um, it's part of the soap opera. It's part of the theater. And you get very little out of it if you're very hyper-focused on what's happening in politics. Yeah, I mean, and to the extent that they do matter, it 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 if there is it, it matters that if there is some sort of memorable moment. Like I, I do think, for example, like in the Democratic debates when when Bloomberg got kind of destroyed, you know that that kind of halted his momentum big time. Um, so I think as long in the debates, as long as you do kind of okay and don't like have an absolute meltdown or some awful kind of thing, it it's it's really just it sorts itself in a partisan way, you know, like. Um, so, so I think that like people kind of maybe overthink it and try to, and try to like win this debate, like outright, and maybe you have to try to force the other person into doing some sort of huge error. Um, but because it didn't happen for, especially for Biden, who's like in the lead, he just was fine. You know, like nothing, nothing, you know, tragic (laughs) happened in the middle of the debate for him. Um, then it's probably just a a net positive for him. Um, Trump needed Mm -hmm. something to turn it around, you know, kind of thing, some big news event to turn, to turn the trends around. Like that's what he needs. A debate's an opportunity to do it. He didn't do it. Therefore it, you know, he lost. So. Right. I mean, it it is kind of amazing. The bar is set so low for Trump that all he needed to do really was, not be a giant asshole. Like, don't interrupt. I mean, he couldn't because they had to treat him like a child and turn his mic yeah. off. Um, but, you know, it's amazing how little he needs to do or not do 
for cable news pundits to immediately talk about how presidential he looks or how his tone has changed and how this is a brand new Trump. It amazes me how many times that same commentary has happened only to see Donald Trump revert back to who Donald Trump is, right? Like, but you know, these people get paid the big bucks for their expert analysis and commentary. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's really mind numbing. I mean, it's, you know, there's a there's a whole thing this morning that came out about Trump like submitted like a written interview I think to the Christian Science Monitor talking about his faith and whatever and it's like and like people are like talk, discussing it as if like it means anything other than like literally nothing you know what I mean like he's talking about like how he used to be a Presbyterian or what you know like Trump has like no idea about any of this stuff you know like there's no so but the media likes to like they need to cosplay that this is kind of like some important presidential. Uh, pageantry and that they're just kind of there um, as court jesters in a way. And when, you know, Trump has really blown that up, you know, like that's like one of the things that Trump like has blown all that up. Like it's, it's all just out the window at this point. And, but they, but they're still holding on to that and, and they're very mad about it. Trump talking about religion reminds me of George W. Bush talking about Shakespeare. Do you remember that right. that moment yeah. from his presidency where he's like, yeah. I, I, I read uh, three Shakespeare's yeah. and a Camus? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, Trump's sure like, it's like I mean, there's like, it's like a classic, it's one of those classic Trump moments of when they asked him, like, what his favorite book in the Bible was. And he's like, all of them. I like them all. I like them all. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Or, or Sarah Palin no on reading newspapers. So oh, yeah. which newspapers do you read? All of them. <laughs> all of them anyway just every yeah. single and newspaper i read the daily the worker thing, the daily worker yes. yeah. it's just amazing it, it's amazing because growing up like when you're a child you really do think that people make it people who make it to the upper echelons of politics oh, yeah. are like incredibly intelligent and they mm. they have it they have something that average mm-hmm. people don't have and then you grow yeah. up and it's kind of like the same realization that you have about your parents like you grow up thinking your parents are perfect they're flawless yes. there are no issues and then you're an adult and you're like oh oh these politicians a lot of yeah. them know nothing Nothing. And it's all about the theater. It's all about the pageantry. And it's all about, like, the make-believe storyline that's only perpetuated by legacy media. Yeah. And so, luckily, we have shows like this to uh, dismantle all of that. Yes. Yes. And lucky we uh, have uh, our good partners at Verso Books publishing all kinds of great books that dismantle the mainstream media narrative because Anna, I don't know if you knew this, but it's spooky October, and there are new no Verso way. Book Club selections. Yes, yes, nice. believe it or not, if you join the Verso Book Club, you can get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get fifty percent off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate fifty years of radical publishing, each member tier is fifty percent off for your first. Three months. The reader tier is only five dollars a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. The comrade tier is twenty dollars a month, and if you join in October, you'll get the Verso Book of Feminism: Revolutionary Words from Four Millennia of Rebellion, edited by Jesse Kindig. A Kick in the Belly: Women, Slavery, and Resistance by Stella Dadzi. An event, perhaps a biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon, a new edition of The Politics of Friendship by Jacques Derrida, and The Verso Notebook, a lined notebook with a classic Verso cover. Plus, 
you'll get 15 additional ebooks. Love it. Love it. You're really good at doing that Verso read. I'm like a little jealous because I'm notoriously bad at live reads, but um, Verso it's is not fantastic. A, not a, it's not a thing to be proud of, you know? <laughs> no, it's, it's, but it's a necessary thing, um, especially mm. when it comes to great partners like Verso. So thank you to Verso and definitely check out uh, the wonderful books that they publish, uh, the types of books that, you know, some of the big publishers uh, usually have no interest in. Um, so thankfully, we have Verso to get these um, important books published. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me let me do a little stretch, okay, for this next right, uh, segment. Because this has been something that's been driving me insane for years. And I realized this is a great opportunity to have a smart discussion about why workplace meetings are bullshit. So... Jeffrey Tubin has been suspended from The New Yorker after his uh, giant mistake in leaving his web camera on during a work Zoom meeting, um, and basically he got caught uh, rubbing one out. That's what happened. He did it on accident. It was a mistake. I don't want to get into uh, this discussion about morality because that discussion has been had on every single show imaginable. But I think that what happened to Jeffrey Tubin um, was an opportunity to discuss something that's been avoided or ignored. And that's the topic of unnecessary workplace meetings. Now, for anybody who uh, carefully read that story, uh, the article posted by Vice specifically, you came across an excerpt that is concerning for The New Yorker, which is a print publication. Apparently, the meeting was about um, an election simulation. The uh, people engaged in this meeting were participating in an election simulation. Why? We don't know. What could this possibly do to help these individuals do better reporting on the election? Maybe there's something we don't know. But let me read you the excerpt that details exactly what was going down when Jeffrey Tubin was caught or seen uh, performing a little self-love. The call was an election simulation featuring many of the New Yorker's biggest stars, many of whom I'm not even familiar with. But anyway, Jane Mayer was playing establishment Republicans. Evan Osnos was Joe Biden. Jelani Cobb was establishment Democrats. Masha Gessen played Donald Trump. Andrew Morantz was the far right. Sue Halpern was left-wing Democrats. Dexter Filkins was the military. And Jeffrey Tubin was playing the court's and performing a little self-love. Now, what was sad and pathetic wasn't what Tubin was doing, although I'm sure people will disagree with me on that. What's sad and pathetic is the fact that they were having this meeting in the first place. And really what we need to call into question is why so many of us get dragged into these ridiculous workplace meetings, which when you really think about it, are nothing more than an opportunity for the professional managerial class to flex its muscle and show everybody how hard they're working and how awesome they really are. In reality, what they're doing is they're taking time away from the projects that we want to be working on. They're taking time away in a lot of cases these days from you know, time that we want to spend with our families or time that we want to spend on ourselves. And instead, we're doing these ridiculous meetings where we're doing election simulations or we're having discussions about the work that we are going to do. Why don't we just do the work that we're supposed to do? Why do we have to have a discussion about it? And a lot of these meetings end up being aimless 
and a disastrous waste of time. Even Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban has said multiple times that he hates meetings, thinks that they're unproductive, and says that he refuses to engage in a meeting unless someone is writing him a check to do so. But when it comes to the average worker, we're expected to say yes to these meetings. We're not allowed to question them. We're not allowed to question whether or not they're necessary or productive. We just have to do it because if we don't, we're not being a team player. Our participation in the workplace isn't evident enough to uh, the PMC. And it's just starting to really rub me the wrong way, mostly because there's a billion other things that I'd rather be doing than sitting in a meeting that's nothing more than a gigantic circle jerk for the PMC. So let me make my case, because I know I shared a lot of commentary and opinion already without providing any evidence. But uh, I I do want to talk about um, just how much of a waste of time they really are. In fact, uh, there are authors who have written entire books about how they're a waste of time. Here's one example. An estimated 55 million meetings happen at workplaces across the nation every day. 55 million a day. One study shows nine out of 10 employees admit to daydreaming during meetings, John Dickerson, and another (laughs) survey, 47% said having to attend too many meetings is a number one time waster in New York. And your book got jokes too. A a meeting is an event where meetings, where minutes are taken and hours are wasted. If I die, I hope it's during a staff meeting because the transition to death would be so subtle. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the dinosaurs died out when they stopped gathering food and starting having meetings to discuss gathering foods. And look, it's not just about that author. It's also about Harvard Business Review. They looked into this. They did a study. And here's what they found. We surveyed 182 senior managers in a range of industries. 65% said meetings keep them from completing their work. True. 71% said meetings are unproductive and inefficient. 64% said meetings come at the expense of deep thinking. Also very true. And 62% said meetings miss opportunities to bring the team closer together. Because honestly, the best collaboration happens organically. It doesn't happen when a manager forces you or drags you into a meeting that's not really about being productive or collaborating or coming up with creative ideas. Again, most meetings are all about showing to the rest of the company that these managers are participating in the workplace, they're organizing things, they're working hard. But in reality, it's all theater. It's all a waste of time. Am I saying all meetings are a waste of time? No, but most of them are. And that's based on actual senior managers who were surveyed by Harvard Business Review. Uh, They also found that constant meetings interrupt the flow of deep work. And I think we've all experienced that, where we're in the zone, we're doing our thing. In my case, I'm writing up a segment that I'm excited to do on this show. And then all of a sudden, I get that ding on my phone telling me, in 10 minutes, you have a staff meeting. What are you going to accomplish in that staff meeting? Nothing. But it's just a way for you to let everyone know that you're working. It's a way of monitoring you. And I think most people get that. So let me tell you more about what tends to happen psychologically as we engage in these meetings. And I think it's important to talk about this because it might explain what happened to Jeffrey Tubin. So in a TED Talk, Ellen DeBerjun, a professor of neurocognitive clinical psychology, said this. 
If a meeting goes on forever, as they tend to do, it's very hard to keep focused. A meeting is a place where you have to keep your emotions in check. You can't say career-killing things out loud. You can't show that actually you'd rather be somewhere else. You can't drop your pants in front of your boss and say, this is how I feel about that. And all of that requires self-control. That's emotionally exhausting. Psychologists call this type of exhaustion ego depletion. And in such a state, people begin to give into temptations. You can't see it, of course, but in a meeting, several of your colleagues are probably thinking about sex. I mean, honestly, I, I don't think about sex during meetings, um, but I can understand how others would. And so it's interesting to see that there's actually been some psychological study into what happens to a person's mind as they're forced into these meetings and forced to control every form of communication, verbal, nonverbal. You have to be the perfect employee. You have to pretend like you enjoy being there and you have to pretend like you're paying attention even as you're thinking about a litany of other things. For me, it's usually the giant mountain of work that I need to get to, but I can't get to because I'm stuck in this stupid meeting. So uh, why do we all have meetings? Like, what is the point? What really happens? Well, as I mentioned, uh, it's meant to give this illusion of hard work. It's all about posturing. And Crystal DeCosta from Scientific American writes, in business, meetings have become something resembling the mythological hydra. A senior team, as senior team members vie for visibility to preserve their place within the organization, this creates circular discussions where decisions are delayed and time is wasted as people take the floor to posture. A multi-headed beast emerges where each head has its own objectives and goals and is resistant to consolidating resources or information because it detracts from any singular, uh, singular individual's position. Meetings don't move us forward. They lack closure. And that's very much done on purpose. So as the pandemic uh, weren't stressful enough, remember, a lot of Americans are working from home now. And the PMC loves to keep an eye on us. They want to make sure that we're working hard enough. They want to justify paying us what they're paying us. And so since so many Americans are working from home, unfortunately, we're seeing the emergence of software that has the very purpose of essentially monitoring workers as they're working remotely. Here's a quick CBS News report explaining how. As many people are working from home during the coronavirus pandemic, some employers are turning to software to monitor what their employees are doing all day long. The technology does things like take screen grabs or monitor how long they're active on their computer. The software companies say it allows employers to see how productive their employees have been. This comes as a study by MIT in April found that nearly half of the U.S. workforce is now working from home. It is kind of fascinating that uh, managers want to make sure that we're being productive uh, because one of the best ways to open up space for us to be productive is to not drag us into their meetings, which are only intended to posture and to show everyone how hard they're working, allegedly working. And so as work becomes more and more intrusive in our personal lives, my question is, when are we supposed to be people? When are we supposed to not be monitored? When do we get some free time to be with our families? When do we get some free time to actually engage in deep thinking and be creative? My best ideas don't 
develop during these meetings. They don't develop when I'm forced to do things that are just meant to communicate to my employers that I'm working hard. The best creative ideas I come up with is when I have a little bit of space to be myself. And quite honestly, when I have some space to not work, when I have some time to go for a run, when I have some time to play with my dog, when I have some time to have uh, a conversation with my husband, those are the moments where I come up with ideas. Those are the moments where I feel like a human being who's excited to go back to the workplace or who's excited to get back to that project I've been working on. But increasingly, and especially during this pandemic, Americans are seeing their employers become more intrusive, more invasive. We're expected to be on call 24-7. After putting in a full day of work, we're expected to log on to Zoom and engage in some nonsense meeting with nonsense planning about some nonsense event. And so every single scientists who's written about this, every single self-help book for managers that I've come across never addresses this by saying, hey, how about we not have dumb meetings? It's always about, well, maybe you need to come up with a better agenda. No, how about no? How about no? How about not having to monitor every single moment of everyone's life? And that includes middle management. So we can be people who enjoy going back to work rather than being these robots who are constantly controlled and constantly judged by our employers. Nando. Wow, that one came from the heart, Anna. That one was delivered with a sense of righteous fury and anger that seems like it (laughs) came from within. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think anyone watching this can relate to that. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, you know, David, the late David Graeber wrote a book called uh, Bullshit Jobs in which he described uh, he, he basically made the claim that over half of the jobs in the United States or like in developed capitalism, uh, capitalist economies are, are essentially meaningless. And uh, and that, you know, given the technological advances that we have, that we should be working so much less to do the stuff that society needs. But nevertheless, we're working more than ever, um, certainly in the United States. Right. We're, we're just like. Mm-hmm. That the number, the amount of hours that people are working is higher than ever, and there's less stuff that we need to do. Like, you know, technology does a lot more of the basic things that we need to to survive. But and a lot of it is um, is just is just this this idea. Yeah, like you said, that it has to perpetuate itself. It has to um, you know justify itself. And these middle managers are just kind of constantly trying to show their worth by scheduling these mind-numbing meetings and it seems to have only gotten worse in the pandemic you know it's like since no one's around at work uh they they want to schedule the meetings just to just to keep you occupied i guess at home instead of like you know pulling a jeff tubin um but uh yeah yeah and and look I hesitate to get into it too much because people are always looking for something ridiculous to attack you on and, and I don't know what Jeffrey Tubin's schedule is like. Uh, but look, my point is all of this like busy work that we're forced into engaging in just to like show that we're working yeah. takes time away from our personal lives. And when you t- like, so when is, I'm not saying like you're in a work meeting and like, yeah, you want to, you want to rub one out, do it. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is as work becomes more and more 
intrusive in our personal lives. And as we're expected to be on call 24-7, because it's the pandemic, people who are fortunate enough to work from home, uh, can't you can't say like, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm not available for that meeting yeah. or I'm not available for this because everyone is home. And yeah. so you get sucked into extra meetings that don't mean anything. When do we get to be humans? Like, when do we get to be yeah. people who aren't constantly working? When do we get to engage in activities that aren't related to our work? Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Totally. So part and, and, of me feels bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, and, and, and here in America, um, here in America, like the... This people's self worth and is is so tied to work to their work like to into into the way they are at work um, like it used to be kind of a very um, kind of basic thing on the left to advocate and organize and fight for the right to do less work I mean that you know there was the the eight hour workday was like you know eight hours for sleep eight hours for work and eight hours for whatever the hell I want to do um, with my life. Um, and that was fought for and won, you know, through struggle. And the, the, the weekend obviously was a thing. Like, I mean, I'm surprised that it's not more of an issue. Like, why don't we just do a three-day weekend, you know, like every single weekend mm. instead of mm. instead of a two-day weekend? And that's something that we could fight for. Like, I remember I remember when uh, when France passed the 35-hour work week, whatever that was, like years ago. Um, just mm-hmm. the, the reaction here from everyone, you know, not just like right-wing ghouls was like, Look at these, you know, Frenchy lazy people that they don't want to work no. in the thing. And it's like, that sounds great. That sounds, you know, Nando, that sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. And I'm so happy you brought that up because I remember talking about that story. It was a long time ago. So I'm yeah, actually like kind of terrified. Yeah. I'm terrified to go back and hear what I had to say back then. <laughs> but no, I, I don't want to live to work. I don't want to live to work like every year passes by quicker and quicker. And I want to enjoy my family. Like I want to enjoy just the simple things in life. I want to go for a walk and just enjoy nature and and the beauty around me. But we get sucked into nonsense all the time. And so really the question becomes, what is the point of life? Is the point of life to constantly be working or is it to really value and enjoy every moment and make every moment count in order to make every moment count your work needs to mean something and a lot of times these meetings mean nothing and that's what's been really frustrating me lately you know reading a lot about the late soviet union and the sort of transition from in the soviet union from after it collapsed from uh, communism to to capitalism like one of the things that people who lived through that kind of bemoaned um a lot was that um when when Russia went capitalist in the '90s, obviously all kinds of chaos and, and social you know collapse. But one of the things people will talk about is that like it used to be that like uh, uh, you know an air traffic controller and a uh, factory worker and whatever like had time to read you know like the Russian classics and 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 books about theory and things like that. And then it would and like basically overnight. Um, when it became when it went capitalist and, and and obviously everyone had to kind of hustle, you know, to base, to basically scrape by and and make a living, like all of that just went out the window. And like the the next mm-hmm. generation of Russians was just not into those things, like you know the finer things in life, uh, classical music, the thing, you know, like all that just went out the window overnight. Uh, and um, you know, it's it's a shame. Like there there should be um, more of a impetus and push to work less like we don't really need to be working like for society to function you know (laughs) for us to live lives of unbelievable comfort like we have 
all uh, all that at our disposal right now. Like we, they're all half of the work that we do. Like I mean, literally half the work it seems like is just completely pointless. So, so yeah, yeah, no, I loved it. It was great. Came from the yeah. Heart. It's a good point. I would love some time to read a kick in the belly. I would love it, but I don't yeah. have time. No, I don't have time. So. I don't have time either. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Alrighty. Nando, let's hear about Bolivia. Yes. Well, guys, uh, this segment's about Bolivia. And to be honest, good news has been very, very hard to come by in 2020. But this week brought a ray of hope in an otherwise bleak landscape. Now, Bolivia, it seems, is swinging back towards socialism. According to exit polls, Luis Arce won Sunday's much-delayed election and got enough votes to avoid a runoff. He's an ally of exiled former president Evo Morales. The poll was a do-over of last year's contest, which was annulled after allegations of fraud. That's right. Bolivia is swinging back towards socialism after it had swung pretty dramatically towards fascism in last year's military coup that ousted the elected leader Evo Morales. The result came as a bit of a surprise, as in the weeks before the election, the polls showed that the leading opposition candidate, the neoliberal Carlos Mesa, was close enough to the socialist Luis Arce to maybe force a runoff. But Arce's victory was so thorough so overwhelming that the Bolivian right conceded defeat shortly after the polls closed. Now, it's worth reminding people that the coup was triggered after Evo Morales and his Movimiento Socialismo, or MAS, won an election last year. And then immediately after, the Bolivian right claimed that there was massive fraud and the Organization of American States, this kind of quasi-official international organization, published a report claiming that there was massive fraud. Now, the allegations were not that the fraud was so widespread that Abel actually lost the election. It's just that he didn't win by a big enough margin to avoid a runoff. But the fraud allegations were repeated credulously by the U.S. media, the most prominent of which was probably Yasha Monk. Yasha positions himself as a sort of enlightened centrist liberal scholar type who is above the fray and is laser focused on defending democratic institutions around the world. And to him, what had happened in Bolivia was not a coup d'etat, no suribab. It was just that Evo Morales had simply gone too far. Writing in The Atlantic, Yasha writes, Like many populists on both the left and the right, Morales claimed to wield power in the name of the people. But after weeks of mass protests in La Paz and other Bolivian cities, and the rapid crumbling of his support both within law enforcement and his own political party, it was his loss of legitimacy amongst the majority of his own countrymen that forced Morales to resign yesterday. What he and some of his most credulous Western supporters described as a coup was in fact something very different. Proof that Bolivians, like the citizens of many other countries around the world, resent arbitrary rule. The longer they have suffered from oppression, the more they have to come to value the democratic institutions that are now threatened by populists around the globe. So yeah, according to Monk, it wasn't a coup. It was simply a social uprising against a dreaded populist who had simply overplayed his hand. Never mind that the military threatened Evo Morales and he had to escape to Mexico and then Argentina, that police forces and other right-wing thugs beat up and then murdered mass supporters on the street, that leading figures of the mass party were arrested, and that Janine Añez, a far-right politician with no support, took power and declared herself president in the name of God himself. Nuestra fuerza es Dios. Yeah, that doesn't look like someone who believes they're going to be a caretaker interim president. 
And in the wake of Añez's takeover, people took to the streets and her government immediately responded with violent repression. Protesters in Bolivia show empty bullet casings and tear gas canisters. Debris from Friday's violent clashes with police that left nine people dead and more than a hundred injured. And Patricia Arce, the left-wing mayor of a town called Vinto, was taken and covered in red paint while they forcibly cut her hair as City Hall burned. So yeah, despite having all the hallmarks of a coup, the media and the political class in the United States were invested in the idea that this was not, in fact, a coup, and that this week's election are proof of that. Like this tweet from the journalist Oz Katerji, what happened in Bolivia is proof that Bolivian democracy is alive and well, not, as some would have had you believe, a far-right lithium-based CIA-Elon Musk joint venture. The free and fair election people argued wouldn't happen actually happened. That's simply a fact. I mean, and that's like saying someone who tried to murder you but didn't succeed in doing so, well, then there's nothing to see here, folks. Because the reality is that it was a coup, and that coup spawned a massive uprising of a well-organized and militant coalition of social movements and trade unions that wound up defeating the coup. It's not like elections just happened. They were imposed from below. So how did they do it? Well, in August, when the Añez government announced that that the promised elections were actually going to be delayed, they called a general strike and essentially shut down the country by clogging some of the major arteries between the cities. La manifestación más numerosa tuvo lugar en la región de campesinos productores de coca del Chapare en el departamento de Cochabamba, donde también se instalaron bloqueos de la carretera que une a ese departamento con Santa Cruz. Por lo tanto, nosotros exigimos que de una vez por todas, para no llegar a mayores problemas, que el órgano electoral y, por supuesto, este gobierno de facto, que supuestamente solo entraron a hacer elecciones, que den certeza al pueblo boliviano, que nos digan la verdad al pueblo boliviano, ¿va a haber o no va a haber elecciones en nuestro estado plurinacional de Bolivia? En la ciudad del Alto, el distrito 8 se plegó al bloqueo de calles y avenidas y un grupo de personas se instaló frente al tribunal electoral para exigir lo que se ha venido en denominar respeto a la democracia. So yeah, I know that wasn't Spanish, but people went out into the streets. They talked about how they blocked the roads to Santa Cruz and there was a labor leader demanding elections like they, they won't stop until the elections happen, happened. And Bolivian workers managed to hold the line for over two weeks, demanding a firm date for the elections. And think about how remarkable it is to pull off something like that in the middle of a pandemic and a crippling economic crisis. Finally, the government caved and elections were held on October 18th. And the Bolivian case is a perfect example of how a left needs to contest for power in elections, but it also needs to have organizational discipline rooted in social movements and the working class. The Bolivian general strike, for example, was called for by La Central Obrera Boliviana, or Bolivian Workers Center, a federation of trade unions that has 2 million members. Remember, Bolivia only has 11 million people total. And Evo Morales himself came up from a different union, the CSUTCB, or the Confederación Sindical Unida de Trabajadores Campesinos de Bolivia, 
which is more rooted in the rural peasantry and coca growers, and the real power center for the mass. And this idea that a political party must compete at the ballot box, but also be involved in permanent social struggle in the workplace and elsewhere has been crucial at making mass a robust and enduring force in Bolivian society. You know, the movement towards socialism was founded with the idea that you, the social struggle and the electoral struggle have to go together. They can't go apart. Because throughout Latin American history, you've had social struggle without electoral participation, guerrilla groups, this sort of thing. And that, that has led to victory in very few places. In a lot of places, like Colombia, has led to protracted civil wars, uh, repression, etc. But likewise, if you just take an electoral approach without that social base, without that social struggle, well, you'll go the way of a million left-wing parties that you have in every country around the world. Maybe you do well, one or two elections disappear a couple of years later. And that's the history of the Bolivian left as well. There's numerous left-wing parties that have done very well electorally, didn't win, but then disappear a few years later. But the mass is something much deeper than that because they combine electoral participation with permanent social struggle on the ground, uh, in the indigenous communities, in workplaces. And that's something that's been going throughout this whole year. That's the journalist uh, Ali Vargas, who's been doing, uh, who's been in Bolivia doing invaluable reporting. Check him out if you haven't already. And he's absolutely right. For years, there has been the fear that Mas's success was tied almost exclusively to Evo Morales' unique charisma and personal popularity, a bit like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela or Lula in Brazil. And that sometimes has been a problem for the left. I mean, with the decks stacked against the left by the forces of international capital, often it takes a special leader to take us over the edge and into state power. But that can be a double-edged sword, and it becomes very easy to defeat the movement by chopping, chopping off its head. And that's what they tried to do with Evo. They figure, well, he's run four times, and he's won four times. Let's just exile him, and the mass will fall apart. And in, uh, But it didn't. And that's because the mass has deep roots in an organized and militant working-class movement. In 2005, they took power by explicitly challenging the neoliberal governing consensus, which had ravaged the country. <laughs> These are historic times in Bolivia. The people have just elected their first ever indigenous president with the biggest mandate in Bolivian electoral history. Evo Morales comes not from the traditional political elite, but from a poor family of coca farmers and tin miners. He was elected on a platform of resistance to neoliberalism, a type of free market economy that's largely been forced on Bolivia by international bodies like the World Bank. Wait a minute. That voice sounds familiar. What? what? Kale, keep playing the clip. Hi. I'm here in Bolivia with Christian Aid. I'm at about 3,800 meters above sea level on the Altiplano, very close to Lake Titicaca. And I can tell you it's pretty hard to breathe. I'm here to meet some of Christian Aid's partner organizations who work with the poorer communities. Really, I'm on a fact-finding trip to discover how well the free market model serves Bolivia the poorest country in South America. That's right. Bobby Axelrod himself, Captain Winters 
himself went to Bolivia in 2006 and produced this anti-neoliberalism documentary where he showed how privatization had destroyed the living standards of the working class. Very low corporate taxes means that once again Bolivians have been shortchanged. Gas production might have increased dramatically, but not Bolivia's share of the profits. The contradiction is clear. On the one hand, large number of people living in terrible poverty. On the other, massive multinationals taking home record profits. I just, I, I can't get over seeing Bobby Axelrod say massive amounts of people living in terrible poverty while massive corporations reaping record profits. Well, Evo Morales changed all that. His 14 years in power saw truly spectacular economic growth while reducing poverty and inequality. According to a report by the Center for Economic Policy and Policy Research, by 2018, real GDP per capita had increased by 50% above its 2005 level, the year Morales took power. While the region overall has experienced a sharp slowdown over the last five years, Bolivia's per capita GDP growth was the highest in South America. Since 2006, Bolivia's real per capita GDP has grown at double the rate for Latin America. And Bolivia's unemployment was nearly halved from 7.7% to 4.4% in 2008 and has continued at roughly around that level through 2018. He did this while bringing millions of people who were previously shut out of Bolivia's political process into the political process. He reconfigured the state to recognize the sovereignty of the various indigenous nations that populate the country. And according to Olivia Argos Artiles, writing in Jacobin, the newfound visibility and prominence of indigenous peoples in Bolivia have been the undisputed success of mass in power. They are now represented as a political actors at the state level and across society. For the first time, cholitas, women who wear urban indigenous dress, can now be seen presenting the news or taking up various public office roles. So now what for Bolivia? Well, the new president... Uh, Luis Arce is a very different man from Evo Morales. Uh, Luis Arce was the key number two, number three person in Evo Morales' government for the whole of the past 14 years. Um, in terms of governing style, very different, of course. Evo Morales is a union leader. He came up from the rank and file, um, whereas Luis Arce is, uh, is part of the middle class. He was educated in the, in, in the UK. He's in the sort of expert economist. But he's as well, he's a socialist. Before joining the government, before becoming economy minister, he held, um, he had a very important sort of study circle here in La Paz called the Los Duendes, which was sort of a Marxist economic study circle where they drew up plans about how you can build an economy post-neoliberalism. That's why he was chosen by Evo Morales, well, chosen by the vice president at the time, Garcia Linera, to join the government. He was moving in the same sorts of uh, sort of, Marxist intellectual circles. You see that? He was running a Marxist economic study circle called Los Duendes. You see that? Even you, Jacobin book club organizer, can become president someday. But Arce will face enormous challenges going forward. Obviously, there's the pandemic, which, you know, sucks for everyone. But he would also have to do a lot of the economic harm that the Bolivian right did in the short time that they were in power. According to the Washington Post, the novel coronavirus has, has devastated the country, killing more than 8,500 of its 11.6 million people, one of the world's highest mortality rates, and further undercut an economy already hobbled by drops in commodities prices and slowdowns in exports. The economy contracted nearly 8% in the first half of the year, and unemployment shot to nearly 12% in a country where broad social initiatives had lowered that rate to less than 4%. 
But Arce was one of the main architects of Evo Morales' economic successes. The question is, will he have the political skill of Morales to govern a country that is quite polarized along class lines? And he will also have to deal with, let's face it, hostility coming from Washington. Evo Morales was, also, was always very confident while bucking, bucking the Washington consensus, but even a Biden administration would likely be opposed to socialism in Bolivia. Here is a tweet from Ben Rhodes, Barack Obama's top foreign policy advisor, and a man considered to be on the far left of the national security blob. I mean, he's a critic of the national security blob. He tweeted, the Trump-Rubio doctrine of incompetent imperialism is a strong wind in the sails of the Latin American left. Hmm. So what would a Biden-Rhodes doctrine of competent imperialism mean for the Latin American left? Likely nothing great. But hopefully, Bolivia and the victory of the MAS can provide hope and inspiration for the rest of the region. Nando, such a great segment. And I especially love that you uh, did hone in on how uh, this past election was so successful, because it's not easy to fight against American imperialism. Um, as we know, the United States was very much uh, behind the OAS's decision uh, to do what it did. Uh, the OAS is overwhelmingly funded by the United States. In fact, uh, Marco Rubio uh, has been so hyper-focused on on ousting Evo Morales. And while I have my thoughts, uh, we have the pleasure and the privilege of having Professor Richard Wolf join us yeah. already. So I would love to have him uh, join in uh, to help us discuss this a little more. Uh, Professor Wolf, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I do want to apologize. I have Band-Aids on here because uh, my dermatologist said I should do that. I've covered them as best I could, but I'm not in trouble or anything. I just, I thought I should tell you. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. No worries at all. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, just get your thoughts on Bolivia and, uh, you know, the fact that they managed to hold the elections with uh, workers taking to the streets, blocking the streets, um, you know, doing what they can to ensure that the elections were held because they were postponed several times. Well, I could not agree more. And I really do deeply appreciate the report that I've been watching that Nando just put together. Uh, my hat's off to you. That kind of journalism I see so rarely, left, right, or center, uh, really lovely. A, a piece of work that makes all the crucial points. And, and here's the ones that talk to me most. The comment by the uh, gentleman from Great Britain that the trick, the remarkable success of the mass movement was this combining of the political party with the social movements on the ground, particularly those rooted in the labor movement. Uh, that was the way that socialism in the 19th century grew as spectacularly in the second half of that century as it did. Uh, and the difficulty of holding that kind of a combination together has been the bane of the left all over the place, including here in the United States, for a long time. So that focus is crucial. Another point I appreciated, uh, and that I say a bit more with my personal involvement, is that you have an economist who has been working not only in the practical matters of being economics minister and dealing with the problems Morales had and his government had, but took the time to produce and to participate 
in a circle of like-thinking Marxist economists trying to understand how in a world so dominated by capitalism and capitalist imperialism, how can you carve out a way out, a way forward? And they found one in Bolivia. They have now found it again. And this is a remarkable testimony to the benefit of, if you pardon the cliche, you're doing theory and practice rather than debating which is the more important. Do them both, let them cross-fertilize, and you will get remarkable results like this defeat of the coup, which is what this is, and which Nando foregrounded in a way I really want to compliment. Ah, you thank know, you. I'm going to tell my, my grandchildren someday. Please, please, write it down. Don't lose it. <laughs> I guess I have one question um, related to this topic. So, you know, the people of Bolivia, the workers of Bolivia, they took to the streets, they understood their power, they engaged in this general strike. What can we do here in the United States to help American workers understand the power they have? I feel like that's the first step in, um, you know, beginning to organize workers for a general strike. Um, you know, why is there this difference between the people of Bolivia and American workers when it comes to just understanding, comprehending and wielding the power they have? Well, I think, you know, it's a tough argument to make, but let me make it anyway. I think the United States, for a whole host of reasons, has been exceptional. In one way, every country is, but the United States has been exceptional. And part of the exceptional quality of the United States, I think, can answer your question. But it requires a moment of history. In the 1930s, 1929 to 1940, the American dream was destroyed. The promise of a greater standard of living, the promise of an upswing, the promise of American exceptionalism to an influx of migrants coming from around the world here had been, you will prosper. You will prosper in ways you couldn't anywhere else because this system only goes one way up. And you know, the truth of it was from around 1820 to the time of the Great Depression, so a good over a century, that had been true. Real wages had risen every decade. Standard of living had gone up. The so-called American exceptionalism that every generation will live better than the one before had in fact occurred. It led to an absurd inference, namely that this would go on forever, which in a way everybody knows is unlikely. But in the euphoria, it got built up. Okay, keep that moment in your mind. Here comes the crash, the crash that produces Dos Passos or John Steinbeck or the, the horror of a collapsing economy all across the United States. It produced in America, and here comes the punchline, it produced in America a very different reaction from what we see today, an upsurge of the left. It even had things like the Moss Party, in the sense that the CIO worked very closely, not only with the Democratic Party and Roosevelt, but also with two socialist parties and the Communist Party. You had a coming together of the labor movement and the political operatives on the left in a way that was extraordinarily powerful. That produced the New Deal. 
That wasn't Mr. Roosevelt's creation. That was an upsurge from below, accompanied by endless labor demonstrations, some big strikes, and so forth and so on. Again, similar. But now you had this remarkable moment in which millions and millions of Americans, not just those in the labor movement, began to see the labor movement and this whole upsurge as the direction of the future. The people weren't scared anymore. They came out to a demonstration. They joined the picket line. They joined the union in numbers we've never seen before or since. It's extraordinary. Everybody felt they were wrapped up in a social change they could celebrate because it had immediate advantages as well as long-term possibilities. And so they did. And they got really excited in a way that is, in retrospect, innocent in terms of not understanding just what you're up against, which also may be similar to the Bolivians. So what happens? You have a coup in Bolivia, and it shakes people up, and it shakes them badly. Well, we had a coup here, too. After the great upsurge around the New Deal, you had the kind of the cherry on top of the of the ice cream. You had an alliance with the Soviet Union to fight fascism. It couldn't have been scripted more dramatically. Suddenly on the over the post office window where you buy stamps across America, there was a famous cartoon. You had Uncle Sam in his tall hat, arm in arm with Uncle Joe, a cartoon of Uncle Joe. That was Joseph Stalin that we were buying stamps under because he was our bosom buddy. He was the glue that held it all together in the fight against the great evil, which was fascism. Well, imagine a population in that euphoria getting smashed. And and I really want to hammer at this. At the end of World War II, Roosevelt dies. The alliance with the Soviet Union is no longer necessary. And the business class in this country, having been whacked by higher taxes than they had ever been seen before, by regulations they had never seen before, and the money gotten by taxing them more used to create social security, unemployment compensation, and a federal jobs program that hired 15 million people, and the minimum wage for the first time. I mean, it was overwhelming to them what had happened. And they went to work to undo it. And here's, and we know the details. I won't bore you with you know them. But I want to emphasize one thing. I believe you traumatized the American people in a very deep way. The innocence with which they had risen up to fix the economy broken by capitalism in the Great Depression had been a moment of exuberance of the American people a moment of believing you could actually make a difference. And then the coup. Again, the the coup. And here's the difference. The Bolivians were able to regroup. That maybe is the most important question. Why? Why were they? In America, we failed. That coup killed the left. And it left, even though the generation that went through it is now gone, I believe, and I've been a professor all my life, and I see it in my students every year, 
There's a deep-seated anxiety in American people, often unconscious, often unverbalized, which, which goes something like this. When someone invites you to a demonstration, back away. If someone urges you to get involved, remember the caution your grandmother said in passing one day during your birthday party. Don't go there. That's dangerous. If you go in that direction, you will be traumatized again. And you know, psychologists teach us, if you suffer a trauma as a child, that's of course awful. But if you can never discuss it, if you can never face up to it, it becomes more awful. It does more damage to your maturation as you grow up. We've never confronted in a really systematic way, what I'm talking about. It mm. sits there below the surface and it immobilizes the left. We have a left. The left is big and it's strong and it's smart. We have the ingredients. What, what, what is lacking is the ability to overcome that psychologically preserved trauma. So we, we have to watch and be jealous of the folks in Bolivia for what they were capable of doing. And, you know, I see it over and over again. Let me conclude with a little story. My family yeah. is by origin French. So I go back to France a lot. I speak French and all of that. And a few years ago, my wife and I are in a hotel in Paris. We come down from the hotel, going off to get our croissant and, and espresso and all of that. Um, and there's a demonstration. And being, being who we are, we immediately join the demonstration and start asking people what's this about. Well, the government has just come down with a plan uh, to do away with the subsidies for uh, daycare centers. And the subsidies usually cover the cost of setting it up, excuse me, usually in the basement of a church. And in Paris, that means a Roman Catholic church. So who's marching? The first line of march, red banners, the Communist Party of that section of Paris. The, the parts of Paris are called arrondissement, and that, that, that's like a ward in the, in the United States, in the city. And the next line of march is a row of Catholic nuns holding up a banner for whatever the name of their church is in that parish. And they're giggling and flirting with, that is, the nuns are, flirting with the communists in the line ahead of them and vice versa vice versa. They all know each other. They all come from this same area. And I realize as I begin to talk with them that they're out here every few months because the government does something stupid and they don't want it. And in this case, they made an alliance that everybody understands. The church needs the money to keep going as a subsidy to rent out their uh, basement for the daycare center. And the citizens many of whom are anti-Catholic in the sense they're not religious, they don't go to church, but they uh, really appreciate the daycare center that is in the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're all working together, which makes sense to everybody. And they understand that they want the labor union to come in and bring its people, which it does. And guess what? Within three days, we were still in Paris at that time, the government rescinded the demand. It, it, it folded. And it folded because it had to. There was no option. Let me bring it forward to right now. Over the last months of this pandemic, 
the United States as a society fired over 60 million people, a third of our labor force, actually a bit more. Uh, they're not all unemployed now. Some of them went back to work. 20 million or 25 million still are unemployed, but put that aside. Nothing like this happened in Europe. Nowhere. Not England, not France, not Germany, not Italy. Nowhere. Why? Because of this. Because in Europe, had they dared to add to the grief of the Europeans around COVID-19 or the grief around the economic crisis that that imp implied and produced, if they had added to that putting a third of their labor force under the anxiety of not knowing if there would be a job when this was over, what conditions of the job would be like, if they even got one when it was... To add the anguish of unemployment on top of everything else, unspeakable. You couldn't do that in Europe. You couldn't do it in any country, whether it was governed by a socialist or a conservative. You couldn't do it, and you couldn't do it for a simple reason. Had you dared to do it, those workers fired, they wouldn't have gone home. They would have gone into the streets and shut the economy down way tighter than anything the pandemic has done or could have done. And, and everybody knew it. That's why they didn't dare deal with it. Unemployment in France, uh, in Germany, for example, the most important economy, was roughly 5% when the pandemic hit. It's 6% now. You notice nobody got fired. Uh, Italy has a lower unemployment rate now during the pandemic than they did a year ago before the pandemic was even a thought in anyone's mind. So the wow. ability to put together the people on the ground moving with the political establishment, even when you don't have an alliance with that political establishment, is powerful. Imagine then what would have happened had the socialists in Europe a, a party that is atrophying everywhere in Europe. But had they not taken the direction they did, keeping separate from the social movements, keeping a distance from the social movements, the very opposite of what happened in Bolivia, had they not done that, the possibility for what could be happening in Europe now would be spectacular. Not perhaps as spectacular as Bolivia, but at least a nice passage in that direction. I'm sorry to take so long, but I, not I think, at all. I think I could listen for two more hours. Yeah, I mean, I look is a hundred percent on target, and and that's why I, I really I'm blown away by this report on Bolivia. It's just, it's not just that the topic is worth it. It's just you 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 found the moments that can be teaching for everybody. Thank you. That's very incredibly flattering. You have no idea. Um, yeah, I, I look at I look at the United States today, and you know, obviously, we've been suffering through a very prolonged economic crisis, basically since two thousand eight. Obviously, steady decline before then. Um, obviously, that was hypercharged after two thousand eight. There's this the new economic crisis brought about by the pandemic. Obviously, that those material conditions have led to a, a, a generation of people basically Anna and my generation that is far more radical than our parents generation um and 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 we were we were so i think the that we were so inspired by someone like bernie because he, precisely because he had lived through so many of those struggles in the past and it, he, we got that sense that he he 
that we were attaching ourselves to a struggle that has been happening for decades and centuries before us, that it wasn't just something new. That being said, we also are not seeing, we, we, maybe I'm not seeing it, but we, we are not anywhere near in any position to, uh, to have to take state power. And I think a lot of it is what you're talking about, that trauma, that sort of hesitance, that, that, that um, unwillingness or fear of going all the way. How do we overcome it? How do we rebuild you know, the actual levers of power to change something meaningful? Well, you know, it's an enormous question. Uh, it is the question for us. Maybe let me start by, by disagreeing with you on one thing. Um, <laughs> every generation has to be allowed to find its own way. Mm. If, if you ask me and I give you an analysis or I give you a piece of advice, I think that's useful. I, I need to believe that, obviously. So I, I think it's useful. But I know my limits. And my limits are you on the ground have the ability, partly because of your age and all that that implies, uh, to take some steps, to make some breaks. You have to do it in your personal life. You know that. You have to leave your parents at a certain point. Uh, for some of us, very hard to do. Spend the rest of our lives trying to do it. Uh, you have to break from relationships that are not good for you. I mean, all of that. You know all of that. And you have to break politically, too. Let me urge you, though, to do it. That The resources that exist in this country for a resurgent left are, in my opinion, enormous. You have to build on them. And how are you doing it? Look. Uh, I'm taken aback by the polling. I've worked on and off in my life with Bernie Sanders. I know him. He knows me and all that. Uh, you're right. He'd been a fighter from day one. Uh, made a decision to leave New York and go to Vermont with all the ambiguities and ambivalences that you can imagine. Um, and he found a way. Uh, he didn't know at each step what the right way was. He wobbled between social movements and political. He ended up doing more of the political, but he, he remembered where he had come from, and he remembered the importance of it in, in a number of ways that's kind of unusual for American politics, uh, even on the left. So, yeah, he's unusual. He's the right guy at the right moment. I feel, even though I have big disagreements with him, you know, politically and theoretically, I feel an enormous debt to him. He had the courage that almost nobody else had, to do what I think was the necessary break in the trauma that you just referred to, mm. by running and not running away from the label socialist, which was a political death warrant, uh, suicide, political suicide for anyone roughly from 1945 to 2015. And that's a long time, almost a century, uh, during which you had this kind of relentless dogmatic uh, denunciation of everything socialist. Look at how the right wing in America today uses the label socialist in a kind of frenetic uh, hysteria almost. And what that teaches you is how deep it still exists. This is, you know, I've been to villages in the, in the American South 
in a, in a church listening to people denounce socialism. And as I listened, I understood they had no idea what it was. This, mm-hmm. this was a deep hostility, genuine, I don't doubt it for a minute, in which they had taken everything that was evil in their lives that they had encountered or heard about and now packaged it very nicely as socialism. So instead of saying something was bad for this or that reason, you had a shorthand. It was socialist. What that taught me was how deep, and I began to recognize it in people who were ostensibly open-minded, who were liberal, and who were genuinely so, and didn't want to pejoratize everything. But underneath the level of their discourse, very similar hysterias were being tapped. It's a little bit like listening to, to Democratic politicians that I know personally rail at me about the Russian manipulation of our... What are you talking about? What, what's the matter here? Russia manipulates our election? Of course it does. Russia manipulates elections all over the world. And they learned it from the United States, which does it... I mean, this is nutty what is going on here, beyond the details of what's exactly right and what isn't, there's a kind of generalized, deep, dispersed nuttiness that we have to get over. And I don't know how to do that with your generation other than what you are now doing. Having this program, producing the, the what the new social media allow us to produce, not worrying when someone says to us, Oh, you're preaching to the choir. As any good minister in any denomination has long learned, the choir needs it too. And don't worry about that. Developing your choir is developing the people who go out into the community and then become the movers and the shakers in part because what they've learned in the moment of the choir practice when the minister and the choir have their interactions. So for me, doing what we're doing will find the way as we go. The crucial thing, and maybe this is the answer you were looking for, who knows? Mm. Don't Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't let anyone stop you. Keep looking. You're going to make mistakes? Of course you are. And them, and you will be embarrassed occasionally. Someone will catch you in a way your wish took over your thought or your enthusiasm. To, yeah, the t- crucial thing, don't stop. You know, let me be personal about it for a moment. Uh, it's a long, complex story. But my parents were immigrants. My father, French, and my mother, German. And I was born here in the United States. I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, which, by the way, is a wonderful case study for collapse of capitalism. If you ever mm. want to see it, just go there and look at the empty factories and all, all the rest. Um, but because of all of this, I went to the very elite universities of the United States. I went to Harvard, then I went to Stanford, and I finished at Yale. It's like a joke. I'm a poster boy for all of that kind of stuff. And here's what my education amounted to. Uh, With the exception of one professor during one semester at Stanford, I was 10 years in the Ivy League from my freshman year at Harvard to my PhD in economics at Yale. I was 10 years in this situation. 
And I majored in economics. That's what I have my PhD in. At no time in those 10 years in the Ivy Leagues was I assigned, with one exception in one semester, one word of the uh, mature work of Karl Marx. Why is that interesting? Well, Marx was and remains the Marxian tradition too, the most developed, sophisticated accumulation of practical and theoretical work that is critical of capitalism and wants to do better. Okay, you don't have to agree with it, but it's an enormous body of work. When Marx dies in 1883, that's 150 years ago, roughly, his ideas spread to every country on this planet in 150 years. A stunning, I mean, you, you can't find that anywhere in human history. That's a lot faster spread than Christianity accomplished or Islam or, or anything else of this kind. And it means something. It means that in every country, as in Bolivia, Marxism spoke to people in ways that made them excited, made them move. Every country has a Marxist a political party or a Marxist journalism or Marxist, you name it, everywhere. It's a powerful, and yet with my education at Yale and at Harvard and at Stanford, nothing. I was educated in, a, in an institution that was so afraid of this Marxism that what they did was to imagine, like a baby, like a child, that if you put your hands in front of your eyes, the scary doggy who's barking at you won't be there anymore until you're supposed to mature and realize the dog stays there even if you cover your eyes. Not for us, not my generation. And let me mention to you, my classmate at Yale was Janet Yellen, who went on to be the head of the Federal Reserve. I know all these people. It's a bit of an old boy network that comes out of these Ivy League schools. Why am I telling you this? Because everything they did for those 10 years was designed to persuade me to stop thinking critically about capitalism as a system to look at it as the gift of God to man and woman, the best thing since sliced bread, something so wonderful, so perfect, that anyone who criticizes it is either ignorant or perverse or probably both. What I don't even understand why I held on. Most of my classmates, even those who came to school with some radical instincts or critical, they couldn't withstand the pressure. I had my moments of doubt, too. But, man, I lived in a society that did everything to do to make me stop. And that's why I'm urging you, don't let that happen. You are part of a critical tradition you should be proud of it. It has moved the world forward. It will do it again. And if I had any little aphorism to end, there's a quote. I usually say it's a quote from a, a great uh, political theorist or a political maneuverer. But since I'm talking to Jacobin, I know I can tell you who said what I'm about to repeat. But first, let me tell you it, then I'll tell you who said it. Okay? It goes like this. For decades, nothing seems to change. Yeah. And then in a few weeks, decades happen. Lenin. Yeah. 
That's how Lenin answered the impatience you just articulated. How do we mm. do? How do we move? And remember, he's thinking of Russia at a time when 95% of the population was illiterate, when the only uh, theoretical anything that anybody ever saw was in the Russian Orthodox Church and within the framework of what, how that shaped the culture of this society. So imagine what he had to deal with trying to hold on to the people who had a critical moment, had a critical insight for whatever complicated reasons. So he told them, no one knows how fast it goes. One last thing from me. I'm an economist. That's what I do. I look at the economy. I am not an alarmist and I'm not a pessimist. I'm really more an optimist and I'm really more been impressed most of my life that whenever I've seen a crisis of capitalism, and I've seen a lot of them, I've always said, okay, maybe if this happens, it can get out of this one. Or maybe if this opportunity arises, or maybe if this part of the world shifts. And mostly capitalism has been very resilient. It's been able to identify ways of getting out of its own dead ends. Having said that, I don't see it now. Uh, the accumulation of unresolved problems uh, is overwhelming. The uh, failure to handle this pandemic is a screaming index of a system that doesn't function. And the anger of people, the, 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 the polling of young people that a socialism, they barely know what it is, is something they find attractive. That tells you what they don't find attractive a bit more than it tells you what they do. But that's all, these are all profound signs. I don't see a way out. I really don't. Which means to me that Mr. Trump is a symptom of all of what I've just said. And so is the failure with the pandemic. And so is the inability to do anything but watch a global competitor, the People's Republic of China, simply outmaneuvering you at every turn. I could add, but for me, I think you ought to be aware that the demands on the American left are going to ratchet up alongside the opportunities for it in a way mm -hmm. none of us could have foreseen as little as four or five years ago. That's how fast this stuff is now unraveling. I know. Professor Wolf. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. But, no, you know, I, to I that point. I tell oh, you. Go ahead. Go ahead. He tell you it's the last thing and it isn't. And I apologize. <laughs> I had coffee from time to time with my colleagues. You know, my left wing ones, my right wing ones, and my in the middle. And because I went to all those elite, I got a lot of people that are to my right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and we don't agree on how we got into this situation. We don't. And we don't agree on how to get out of it. We don't. But let me tell you what blows my mind. With most of them, we agree on the following sentence, which we've gone around the table. This is the worst condition of the American economic system in our lifetimes. And I got gray hair. So my lifetime's a long time. And I'm telling you, no one is prepared. We all agree. We don't know what to do. We have our differences. But... This is terrible, and it is getting more terrible. We've had three crises in this new century. The dot-com, so-called, in 2000. The subprime mortgage, so-called, 2008. 
and now the COVID-19, that's three crises, each worse than the one before in the first 20 years of a new century. You want evidence of a system in trouble? What are you asking for? It's all there if you're willing to see. Yeah. Let me stop. Otherwise, well, I'll be well, like to that point. To that point, there, uh, I'm really curious uh, to hear your thoughts on a story that Politico broke this week. And it has to do with the role of Senator Bernie Sanders uh, and how he could possibly have a position within Joe Biden's cabinet. Now, it appears as though, based on how this article was reported, Senator Sanders would like to serve as labor secretary in the Biden administration. And so there's a little bit of a debate happening right now as to where Senator Sanders would be more effective as labor secretary in a Biden administration, or if he remains in the Senate, where if Democrats take control of the Senate, uh, he could chair uh, two important subcommittees, including the Senate Budget Committee and the Senate Subcommittee on Health. And so, you know, you're weighing these options, trying to figure out where he could be the most effective. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What can he do as labor secretary under uh, a Biden administration? Well, you know, this may not have been the answer you might have wanted from me, but to be honest with you, and what other point would there be? I think Mr. Biden has absolutely no interest and no use for Bernie Sanders beyond being able to say, as he has done increasingly recently, that he beat the socialists uh, in order to assuage anyone's concern that he might be in some way um, amenable to giving Bernie any real authority or any real power. So, I mean... If, he, if Bernie were offered this, he might take it, but I think and I hope that he would take it in the spirit that if this is fraudulent, if this is an attempt uh, to quote uh, a certain kind of ethnic uh, remark I shouldn't probably make, um, <laughs> keep, your, keep your friends close, uh, keep your enemies closer. Um, maybe Mr. Biden would like to keep Bernie quiet for fear of what he could do as an outside critic who already has a mass base. My instincts tell me if I were Bernie, if he asked my advice, don't do this. Stay mm -hmm. in the Senate, but go after those committee positions if they are even possible or available. Um, given what I know about Mr. Schumer, uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be too hopeful there either. But nonetheless. If he can, good. But whether or not he can, he is a formidable, a formidable foe outside. And if he uses that position, if he mobilizes, if he works, uh, he can have at least as much influence on what finally happens as he could by being uh, closer to the seat of power. Um, nothing in Mr. Biden's history gives me any reason to believe that he would allow uh, Bernie any kind of latitude at all. Nando, would you like to follow up on that? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've like, my initial instinct was like, there's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a large federal bureaucracy that 
you know, someone like him with an, with with such a large political following, you know, taking up that kind of position, it would be kind of unprecedented, certainly in recent in recent times. And that, you know, for any sort of labor organizing um, to happen to have an ally like that, not not someone actively hostile to any labor organizing, it might help re- revitalize a little bit or at least slow the trajectory and, and reverse it um, that we've been on of just like decline in, in labor density. But I could be wrong. But I guess I guess my like my my question to you, Professor, would be, you know, I, I think that one of the things that you do so well and why you've been such a inspiration to so many of us um, is your plain spoken um, and confident arguments in favor of the things that you believe in. Um, and I, you know, I think that that's something that those of us that are that are younger members of the left, like often kind of, you know, we struggle with where like, it's like, you know, we, we, we don't have that, you know, the decades of experience of, of fighting these fights of having these arguments, you know, and um, I think that the, the, the effect that you've had on millions of people through, through the work that you've done is to arm us with those kinds of arguments. And so I guess I would say like, what would your best, what would your best argument to sort of, turn someone, for lack of a better term, into a Marxist, socialist, whatever you want to call it, be? Well, I've always, again, to be very personal, I've always relied on my sustained interactions with people. Being a teacher in a classroom, you know, you have every semester roughly 13 weeks. You meet with students twice a week or three times a week. That's a long time, and you can have an interaction, a relationship of talking about things. I can assign reading so that the reading is, is, you know, helps develop the arguments, provokes the questions, uh, encourages the debates. And I have been confident and felt very good most of my life, even in, during the whole Cold War period as a professor. Uh, I was able to, my classrooms were full, the excitement was palpable, uh, even in the worst of the Cold War, with the, with all the pejoratives around a critique of capitalism, let alone advocacy for something better, socialism or whatever you want to call it, my students didn't find any of this very difficult. They just needed, I guess that's what you're telling me, they needed people to tell them it was all right. You know, human beings have critical feelings. You have criticism of your mother and father. You may not dare to articulate them even to to yourself, but you sure have them. And if you go to therapy later in your life, you learn that it's healthy to be aware of them and to confront them uh, and to try to cope with them and so forth. It's the same thing here with social criticism. That's why it's important that there are magazines like Jacobin. They're important that there are book clubs like Jacobin has set up. It's important to have all of this going on because it gives other people the confidence to ask those questions, to allow that in themselves that's already there to come out, to become conscious, to become explicit, to discover that there are other people who share this kind of thing. You know, uh, I had a conversation with a person very close to Bernie, and we both agreed, and I thought it was significant, 
the, the most important thing that Bernie's two campaigns did was to teach people everywhere that they're not alone, that the millions who supported Bernie are exactly that, millions, and that there are millions more who could if they were given the confidence. Bernie, by standing up and being a nice old man who doesn't scare you or threaten your children or anything else that you thought might be involved in socialism, he was in some ways perfect. He was the kindly older fellow who made these interesting arguments and did it with a kind of charming passion that enabled people to get in touch with themselves, the parts of themselves that pushed in that direction and probably had through much of their lives, but they hadn't yet come to terms with it. So again, I, I, I'm beating the drum. Don't stop. Keep doing it. It, it, it is, I think, the best hope we have, and it's working, uh, it's working from below. In terms of Bernie himself, I don't know if you noticed, but over the last couple of weeks, there have been a number of central labor councils. I've noticed them in Seattle. I noticed one in Rochester, New York, uh, who said, who passed a resolution uh, that if Trump was defeated, but didn't leave, they would make a general strike in their community. Seattle, Rochester, uh, Sarah Nelson, uh, a really important labor leader uh, in Washington and for the people who work on the airlines. Uh, she has been advocating general strike to be used for political objectives for a good long while now. There's an interesting ability there to raise a question that has been taboo in the labor movement, namely a general strike. And not just a general strike about some economic issue, but a general strike about a political issue so that the labor movement is re-entering the world of politics as something other than a support system for the Democrats. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Joshua Con Russell is, uh, you know, leading that movement for a general strike if Donald Trump loses the election and refuses to leave office. And I think that's the I think that's the right strategy. Um, he's done a number of interviews about it, uh, and he's going to be on uh, the Young Turks this coming week to discuss it in detail as well. So please check out the wonderful work that Joshua Con Russell is doing. Um, and as you know, he was a regular on the Michael Brooks show along with you, uh, D Professor Wolf. That's how I learned about your work. Um, and I have to be quite honest, you know, the, the work that you're doing um, through democracy at work um, has really helped educate so many people, myself included, my husband included, who's the son of, um, you know, Cuban refugees from the 1950s. So as you can imagine, he uh, received a very different message from what you're putting out there. So uh, I really do thank you for all the hard work, um, for your blunt honesty, and for taking the time to uh, have this conversation with us today. Listen, it's my pleasure. I support what you do. I, I'm I'm happy that the Jacobin Project got launched. Seems to me, again, evidence that there's an audience for what you are all doing and that you're serving that audience in just the way. And again, I, I, I appreciate all the, the kind words, but you're doing what you're doing. That's what my generation, that's the best thing we can hear. So believe me, I'm as appreciative yeah. of you as you have been kind enough to say you are for me. 
And if you want to have a conversation again, just know I'll be as happy to do it in the future as I was this time. I love it. Thank you so much. And, uh, And take care. You too. And thanks again for the opportunity. All right. Oh, God, I love Dr. Wolf. I like Professor Wolf. He's so fantastic. And that took me right back to the conversations he would have with Michael. Um, I always really enjoyed it. One of the one of the last times he was on Michael Brooks's show, uh, Professor Wolf, like really like they were having beers. He let loose. Um, And that was the conversation they had about whether or not you can reform capitalism. And mm. Professor Wolf makes very strong arguments for why you can't really fix it. Um, mm. And I think, you know, what he described in the, uh, you know, the undoing of the New Deal era, um, I think perfectly like sums up why yeah. it can't be reformed. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I think we, we would be remiss. So I think we should plug uh, Professor Wolf's books, you know, understanding yes. socialism, understanding Marxism and the sickness of in the system. It's uh, the sickness is the system. Sorry. Um, they're invaluable. And as you can see, I mean, I don't know if we've ever had such a positive response to an interview. I mean, he's just absolutely inspiring. I mean, I think that, again, like, I meant that that the the sort of plain spoke like he's he can he can go toe to toe with anyone on like the complex stuff like he he could do that if he wanted to he could go to like some academic conference and and own some you know person on like some very obscure thing but he he also is very good and this is such a difficult skill of just saying things clearly plainly that anyone could understand in relatable terms with a sense of humor with a sense of history like all those things he's 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 amazing. He really is. All right. Well, uh, we do have a salt segment for you guys today. And um, before we get to it, uh, if you're watching live, we highly recommend you send in your super chat questions. We will be taking a few questions toward the end of the show. Um, But before we get to that, uh, Nando, you are the one who drew my attention to our salt topic of the week. And so would you like me to set it up or would you like to do it? No, go ahead. I, I, I love, I love, I, I, I know you, Anna, a little bit, and I know the kind of stuff that'll get you going. So that's what I sent you an article. I'm like, this Anna's going to love this. <laughs> so, oh, I did. I mean, I yeah. loved it, but it was one of those things where I'm like, as I'm reading it, I become more and more puzzled by it. And so there's, there's, yeah. but you guys will see what the narrative is here. Okay. So let me go ahead and set this up for you. So GQ had a fascinating, lengthy piece titled Immaculate Concussion. It was written by Julia Ioff and confused the hell out of me as I was reading it. Uh, It seemed like a thinly sourced piece, and it had some very heavy accusations against uh, Cuba, Russia, you know, countries that are typically known as our adversaries. And so I'm going to read a few excerpts to you for you, and then uh, we'll try to, I guess, decode what's going on here. So the heart of this story is these alleged uh, incidents where our adversaries used, quote unquote, energy weapons against members <laughs> of the CIA. So here's uh, here's a few pieces uh, from the reporting that I want to share with you. So they talk about this uh, CIA agent. He's the primary source in this piece. Uh, He was a senior CIA official tasked with getting tough on Russia. Then one night in (laughs) Moscow, Mark Polymeropoulos 
Uh, his life changed forever. He says he was hit with a mysterious weapon, joining dozens of American diplomats and spies who believe they've been targeted with this secret device all over the world and even at home on U.S. soil. So the piece <laughs> indicates that there have been at least three incidents of Americans being attacked by this energy weapon on American soil. Now, as a CIA investigation points the blame at Russia, the victims are left wondering why so little is being done by the Trump administration. So already the plot thickens. You can see what the whole like point of this piece is like Donald Trump, very bad, refuses to hold Russia accountable for bad behavior. But again, the, the whole like notion of this energy weapon being used, right? Again, it's a heavy accusation. And I, I just haven't seen anything in this piece that that validates that claim. But let me continue. Polymeropolis, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, please forgive me if I'm not, has never detailed publicly what he calls his silent wounds. But in the years since he left the CIA, he has become increasingly frustrated by the agency's reluctance to give him and other CIA officers affected with the medical care they need. It's incumbent on them to provide the medical help we require, which does not include telling us that we're making it up, he told me. I want the agency to treat this as a combat injury. And so the thing that really stood out to me in this piece was that in 2017, apparently Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, wants to send some CIA agents to Russia. And so this Polly Mariopoulos guy says, I'm going to go. OK, these people uh, like Polly Mariopoulos don't know much about Russia. How are you a CIA agent? You don't know much about Russia. You're about to go to Russia. But okay, let me continue. Don't know much about Russia, its history, or its culture. He's quoted as saying, we knew nothing on Russia, uh, but admits, uh, but like his Russian counterparts, he and his counterterrorism comrades were fluent in the language of force. So it's like, I don't know anything about Russia, but like they're definitely using weapons. Like that, I know that for sure. Okay, cool. Now, Moscow granted him and his colleagues visas, but the Russian embassy in Washington told him directly that they did not want him to make the trip. Now, according to him, they said <laughs> Why would they did it be? not buy. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Okay, so he's he's being told here, don't go. This is a bad idea. They don't want you there, right? And so uh, they said they did not buy the Americans' excuse of wanting to further counterterrorism cooperation and feared they were actually coming to Russia to run covert operations, an <laughs> allegation that he denies. So he's a CIA I, agent. <laughs> like, what's. <laughs> okay. He's Take a, it away, Nando. CIA Take it away. Agent. <laughs> he's a CIA agent. Hey, oh, these, these dastardly Russians think a CIA agent's going to come into my country and do covert operations. Oh, my God. You know, like, what is what, – why would they think that? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy to think about. It's like I love that they even set it up. They even said it in their own words that, like, he doesn't know anything about Russia, but he knows the language of force. He's going to get tough with Russia. Okay. Then, yeah, why would they want a CIA agent in their own country doing whatever the hell is they do? <laughs> this is one of the most amazing articles ever like yeah. i know this sounds like hyperbole it's not it's one of the most amazing articles ever written like yes. you had tweeted about it nando and you said every paragraph is more infuriating than the last and you're absolutely right it just becomes more and more bizarre uh <laughs> the contradictions like endless contradictions uh saying the quiet parts out loud 
and then contradicting yourself. It's amazing. And so he's told like, you are not welcome. Do not go, but he goes anyway. And so once he shows up, the entitlement of this guy is kind of incredible. (laughs) So the Russians as, as, as it's written in the GQ piece, the Russians launched into a long lecture on America's systemic racism uh, and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Polly Mariopoulos turned to one of his colleagues and asked, is this guy effing kidding? Like, are you serious? The colleague assured him that this was a standard Russian practice going back more than a half a century. Oh, it's, it's specifically a Russian practice of speaking the truth about what the United yeah. States has done. Like, okay, fine. Uh, let's continue. He countered Japanese by warning the Russians. Japanese internment was Russian disinformation. <laughs> <I know. laughs> he countered oh. by warning the Russians to stop meddling in American elections. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is so, this article is hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, First of all, this idea that there's this like rush, like this secret Russian ray gun that can target like a single person from two miles away, like as if it was some sort of Bond villain technology and that the CIA wouldn't know about it or have one, you know, it is like just ridiculous to, to, to even ponder. Um, and, and but I, I don't know, like I think that. <laughs> It's, I don't know if this has always been the case. I mean, it definitely has always been the case. But when you're the official enemy of the United States in the American press, you can basically say anything, anything about them and it'll fly. I mean, the, the really obvious pernicious example was um, with Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction, which like, you know, all those stories like went through, even though there was no editorial standards to to vet them. But like, you know, the sort of international terrorists, the Middle Eastern bad people have been replaced by Russia, which is an old foe. Right. Which, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like coming back. And now since since 2016, you can basically publish anything about. And if you mention the name Russia, you'll get away with it. You can publish anything. Um, no standards like the standards go out the window. Um, if you're talking about Russia, you can just it's it's really amazing. Yeah. And it it's it's frustrating because the Democratic Party feels the need to inject Russian disinformation or their disinformation about Russia into every political issue. So for instance, like the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing, right? No evidence at all that this is part of a Russian disinformation campaign, like zero. (laughs) I haven't seen a single shred of evidence on that. None. Because here's the, the truth of the matter is like Giuliani's involved in this. Giuliani is Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's personal lawyer. We don't even need Russia to get involved. We have the Biden's political opponents engaging in this. Their names are involved in the story. There's evidence of that. They've taken ownership of it. Why do Democrats feel the need to immediately like put Russia in the mix? Right. And look, if there's evidence of it, then share that evidence with us. But they haven't. And what it does is, in the very least, it distracts from whatever message it is that they're trying to put out there, right? Because if they're trying to uh, discredit the story, I think just the mere fact that Giuliani's involved can really help you out with that. Uh, But they feel the need, like, no, that's not enough. We need to make stuff up about Russia and how Russia's involved in order to further, you know, fear monger about this story and fear monger about our, um, you know, alleged adversary. 
Yeah, you know, and, and the other thing that I mean, th- that's always been why I've been so annoyed by the whole Russia narrative is like, I don't doubt that maybe something happened and they, they whatever, like, I, I, I've always believed that the, the actual effect of it was definitely negligible. But the actual kind of political effect in the United States has been to create this sort of mass hysteria around it um, as a way to get the let the Democratic Party off the hook for anything, for anything. I mean, like this Hunter Biden story is a problem. Like it is it's bad. Like he he shouldn't have done that. OK, like he shouldn't like it's bad. Like the, the Burisma thing is is bad on its face. Like you don't yeah. even need to look into it. It's like that was vice president. And this but, guy gets. Yeah. Hold on. No, no, you're right. It is bad. But that's where we disagree, I think, with. Democrats, like corporate Democrats. We disagree because for them, like, yeah, of course, we're going to help our kid who has absolutely no expertise in the energy industry, no expertise, period. We're going to help him serve on the board (laughs) of an energy company in a different country where he's making $50,000 a year. Like what's a month? What's wrong with that? Right. They don't see anything wrong with that. They don't. And so that's that's really the issue here. Like it does look bad. And it's okay. It is okay to acknowledge that while also being a little more skeptical of what's coming out of the mouth of a crazy person and lunatic like Rudy Giuliani. But (laughs) when you're not honest, when you don't approach this story or this issue from a place of honesty, well, then it snowballs into all this ridiculous hyperbole. It snowballs into Russia did it. It's just nonsense. And it's so frustrating. Well, and then the other thing that that drives me crazy about about the this like sort of new cold war with Russia, which of which this GQ article is like a very uh, one of the best examples of it is that is the brazen uh, sense of entitlement, you know, that that we have as Americans, you know, like that this. Yeah. What? Russia's not going to allow our CIA agents to just waltz around their country and do whatever the hell they want, you know, (laughs) as if like. We would ever allow, like, totally. knowingly, uh, like, a KGB guy to just walk around or, like, an FSB guy or whatever. You know, like, we would go we would go ape shit if that were the case. You know, but we just, we, we it's it's so ingrained in this guy's worldview and in Julia Yaffe's worldview that that's okay. It's so ingrained. It's like a fish in water. They just, they believe, like, we just have the right to do whatever the hell we want in Russia. You know, like... And 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 the, the mind numbing thing about all this is like you don't have to um, like say that you know Putin is like this good guy or whatever you know it's right. it's the, but it is clear that he is the leader of a country and they have the, like sovereignty and like they they they, they it's om- it's it's understandable for them to want to resist um, sort of Western advance on their own affairs and in their own country. Like, I mean, the expansion of NATO to the East is a threat to Russia. Like, of course it is. Like, it's not like some sort of God-given right that we can just, like, sign military alliances with, you know, people that make, that are actively threatening a country, no matter how much we dislike them. Like, if Russia were to sign a military alliance with Mexico tomorrow, we would invade Mexico, like, the day after, you know? Like, it's, it's just, it's crazy to me that and and but we we take it as 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 accepted fact that we're allowed to do whatever we want to Russia and they just have to sit down and take it. Yeah, and it's not just Russia, it's any other country. I mean, Yeah, of course. Look, I think I, and I I can see why, you know, the more establishment corporate democrats look at the left and feel like, you know, we minimize Russia's threat or whatever, whatever they think Russia's threat is. But, but the truth is like 
just like think about it for a second, okay? We like they're throwing a hissy fit over Russia meddling in or attempting to meddle in our elections. That's what Russia is going to try to do. In fact, like we should acknowledge that and do what's necessary to protect our, you know, our whole system um, from that type of interference, not just from Russia, but from other countries. They're going to try to do the same. Right. It's just a given. We all know that this is going to happen. But at the same time, you can't have the United States government throwing a hissy fit about other countries trying to interfere in our elections while we orchestrate coups around the world. We orchestrate coups over like we overthrew through a military coup Evo Morales in Bolivia. That's what we did. We did that. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take ownership of that and understand, you know, first of all why you know, Russia wouldn't just want random CIA agents to show up. (laughs) And secondly, (laughs) why we come across as these ridiculous hypocrites when we, you know, when we get so angry at other countries doing to us or attempting to do to us what we've already accomplished in doing in multiple countries over several decades. Yeah. No, and then there, and there's real issues like you know the confrontation with Russia uh, is is dangerous. Like it's 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 literally like a very dangerous thing. Like you know Russia has tons of nuclear weapons. We have tons of nuclear weapons, and you know over the past few decades there have been treaties to try to minimize um, the the amount of nuclear weapons. Like to sort of you know bring that the potential of nuclear catastrophe down because the more nuclear weapons there are the, the the more chances there are of doing that like that treaty is is, is under threat like the 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 start treaty is like you know mm-hmm. because and it's and it's being driven by liberals like really like it's it's crazy to me like this isn't like this is it's 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 seeing the world in this kind of um you know nihilistic hobbesian view of like we're all just kind of um, at each other's throats all the time when the thing that we desperately need moving forward is collaboration amongst nations. We don't have to like anyone. We don't have to like, you know, make apologies for bad things they do in, internally or whatever. But like at the end of the day, the real, the real politique of it is that we need collaboration for things like climate change, migration flows and nuclear weapons. And which could literally blow up the world at any given moment. Um, so I don't know. It's just it, the the fact that liberals kind of are bloviating over this stuff so much and just going apoplectic drives me crazy because it's 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 not just dumb and wrong, but it's dangerous. Yeah, it is dangerous. I mean, the narrative and the commentary coming out of um, Democrats following that ridiculous story about uh, Russia uh, paying. Uh, what do you call it? Bounties. Yes, paying bounties uh, yeah. for the Taliban to like kill U.S. soldiers. That, like, remember, everyone was like, "Oh, oh, when is Trump going to hold him accountable? When is Trump going to hold Russia accountable?" I mean, there was really no evidence for that story at all. And um, you know, as we've talked about on the show multiple times, more and more generals are coming out and saying, "Like, yeah, um, we've been looking into this, and we haven't really seen any evidence." Okay, so what did? Democrats want Trump to do? Did he want Trump to start a war with Russia over something (laughs) that hadn't been confirmed? I don't really understand. And so in their minds, this is a political ploy to hurt him. But we're dealing with an unreasonable, irrational person who could do something incredibly dangerous because you're like goading him into it. So luckily that didn't happen. But it's just the it's it's really shameful 
what we're seeing from the Democratic Party and and from mm-hmm. reporters who just simply regurgitate what some random CIA agent is telling them. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's take some questions. I want to believe you two, but with Nando with these Russian dolls behind him, I mean, it's, <laughs> oh no, it's pretty clear. Out. It's pretty yeah. clear that uh, we've been compromised by our enemies. <laughs> <laughs> you should see my P tape. It's way hotter. Uh... <laughs> you can only see that if you like and subscribe. And you hit yeah, the bell. I'm gonna start. Video. I'm gonna start a Jacobin OnlyFans. Uh, Jacobin OnlyFans for political education, uh, and there'll be some P tape involved. I promise you. Damn, it's Nando! Just... Don't be promising stuff like that. That would blow up. <laughs> all right, all our um... demographics. That's just that's just good marketing. <laughs> uh, yeah, if people have questions, there's a couple of questions I'm gonna start with, but. Um, uh, we'll try to hit a couple more. So if people have questions that they want us to answer, put them in the live chat using the super chat, and uh, and we'll get to them. But first, let's see. Um, okay, well, so there's one... Mm, let me start with this one. Warren Ellis, and I don't know if this is the comic book artist or the Nick Caves and the Bad Seed Warren Ellis, but either way, great. <laughs> Um, <laughs> wow, good flex, Kale. That's a good flex, man. <laughs> but, uh, well, I don't know. It might yeah. be one of them. It could be. It might be. Um, <laughs> I'm just showing my respect to the audience. Um, yeah. But Warren, uh, Warren's asking, as per uh, Josh uh, Russell, the progressive left needs more people to believe our message. How do we change the DNC leadership? Um, <laughs> a lot of different ways to hit that one, but I, it's kind of a big question. So I want to see where you guys would take it. That is a big question that I have to like really think about and explore. I, I don't I don't have an answer right now. Um, Nando, do you? Well, uh, I, uh, the Seth Ackerman blueprint for a, a, a new party article in Jacobin, which came out a few years ago, uh, I think is very much like a must read uh, for everyone. And it it basically talks about how I mean, the Democratic Party is not like a not a is not a democratic institution you know like it's very difficult right. for people to exercise democracy within it it's this it's just that's just the reality of it in a weird way the the republican party was like more democratic in, in some in certain ways than the democratic party but um um so what he talks about is this sort of um you know independent institutions that then you know kind of run on democratic party lines um and, and you know run as democrats but like also have like independent institutions that kind of hold them accountable and things like that. It's not, it's not an easy thing and not like a satisfying thing. Like it would be super satisfying to, you know, see uh, Tom Perez just like melt away and have, I don't know, you know, whomever like is one of our allies, uh, Kale Brooks uh, leading the DNC. Um, But uh, it just, it just seems very, very difficult uh, to do that. So I think that, you know, that, that, that sort of idea of having this sort of inside out strategy of independent institutions, um, but again, building those up is, is, is hard. So I don't know. I don't know if this is a satisfying answer. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And it's not just about who's leading the DNC. I mean, the, like the whole organization uh, outside of the fact that it's like undemocratic, we don't get to vote who, who, um, you know, is part of that committee. And by the way, when it comes to their platform, like, we don't have a say in that. 
You get what I'm saying? Like the whole process yeah. is pretty undemocratic. Um, but like as an organization, I, I just feel like it's it needs a lot of work. It's not just about who's the head of the DNC. You get right. what I'm saying? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the reasons that you both just mentioned, the U.S. doesn't really have parties in the way that the no. rest of the world has parties. Like, yeah, that's just so important for people to understand that the parties that we have aren't political parties properly understood in political science around the world. Like, they're just different things. It's, yeah. The DNC is basically, I mean, this is, if, if you want, like, the best thing to read on this, honestly, is um, some work that Adam Hilton did a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it was in Socialist Register. I don't remember. But um, but basically, I mean, the, the DNC and the RNC, like, they are just fundraising machines. That's the whole point. Yeah. Right. Like they, it's, it's better to think of them as just kind and of like, and like branding exercise, like branding shops in a way. Right. They're, they're extensions of the state rather than like what you usually get in other countries, which are like political parties that are a means of getting people into the state to occupy those positions. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, do we want to influence the DNC? I mean, I think the the way that you influence them or any people in political power is the way that we historically have been successful in in leveraging uh, our interests, uh, which is when you have a vibrant and strong and militant labor movement like we did after World War II um, for a brief period of time, a couple decades, uh, Every single important political decision that's happening, regardless if it's uh, Eisenhower or Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon, the labor movement is a part of that conversation because it can't not be. Because if you're threatening, uh, if if you're doing something that is going against the labor movement in such a substantial way, there is the the possibility that uh, the threat is that, you know, it might lead to strikes. It might lead to work slowdowns. so fundamentally, you know, sorry to, you know, I'm playing one track every single week, guys, but it's, it's like true. It's, the it's, path to power yeah. for the left is through the labor movement. And yeah. there's stuff that you can do outside of that, of course, but always know that lacking that, we are fundamentally handicapped in this fight. Yeah. Um, and yeah. even when we have it, we're still not, you know, we're still going to be in a, in a weaker position. But yeah. that is the means by which working people take power and and yeah. gain uh, you know power and autonomy in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take it from the DNC just to we need a labor movement <laughs> as always. Um, uh, okay, actually, let's see. Um, Another question, and we've been talking about this all day, but someone asked, did Nando get seduced by Wolf's case against Bernie being labor secretary, or is he still in favor of that? All right. That's a great question. So, okay. So like what you just said, Kale, like, you know, there is no, there is no path to power to any meaningful change without a revitalized labor movement. It's hard to overstate how defeated the labor movement is in the United States. It's, it's really unique in all the Western democracies, just how, few workers in the United States are a part of the labor union, how hostile the state is towards uh, towards labor organizing, how difficult it is here compared to other places. It's just it's it's unprecedented. And that is to me that that's why I am seduced by the idea of Bernie as labor secretary in, in, in only insofar as that he's such a popular 
figure. First of all, we would never have had like he's maybe he would maybe be the most popular cabinet secretary in hit like in at least in modern history. There hasn't been someone so um, with with such a, amount of to, with such an ability to rally um, like political movement uh, behind him. And it would like you know these these federal bureaucracies, which have been so decimated by by um, basically like internalized neoliberalism, and that like we don't see them do any doing anything. They do have very large budgets, very large staffs. You know, like that that with with someone at the helm, just kind of unleashing that power, you could imagine it helping. Um, in, in, in organizing campaigns that like if, if you're an organizer and you feel like you have Bernie as labor secretary, like in running the Department of Labor, like imagine if he showed up to like some, you know, like, a, you know, an organizing campaign or a picket line or whatever, you know, like and then daring Biden to fire him for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like imagine the, the, the optics of, Bi- of Biden firing Bernie as labor secretary for going for showing up at a picket line. You know, like it's just to me, it strikes me as. Um, as uh, as as latent power that we don't see right now, and it is isn't obvious, but it, it's 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 lying there. Um, would it would it stifle his kind of independent voice? Yes, a hundred percent. But my counter to that is that we're in a situation now in America where we have developed um, more of a, 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 a of an independent left media uh there's other you know people like aoc and ilan omar who are also like still in the congress like you know 15 years ago none of this existed you know we didn't have jacobin we didn't have uh the myriad other things that that provide that kind of bulwark against uh liberal hegemony on the sort of left side of the ledger you know so it's i'm just saying we don't necessarily need uh like bernie's independent voice as much as we used to um and just to have him there um help like even if one large like one large high profile firm was able to was able to be organized with the help of someone like bernie as labor secretary in the first year or so it could be like such a sea change and 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 sort of a a a inflection point in the downward trajectory that we've been seeing um, basically since the mid 1970s in terms of union density. So that's, that's my case for it. You know, like I, 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 that his, you know, he's been in the Senate. He has been in it. He's been in the Congress for a long time. So he, you know, he's had, he's played that role for decades, you know, and, and one of his, you know, one of his things when he was uh, mayor of Burlington for so long was the sort of very effective management of the bureaucracy of Burlington. Like that was like something that he was very committed to um, and was a huge source of political power for him. And like one of the things that we've seen in the past decades of, in American life is just a, a, just a huge failure of like basic competent uh, leadership of the federal uh, bureaucracies, the executive. It's just it's all just kind of falling apart. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, that that's that's where my argument for it is. I. I, I, you know, I'm by no means like, you know, this is the 100% yeah. the way it has to be. But that's that's my argument for it. No, I definitely see your reasoning for it. It's not like you're you're, you know, coming to that conclusion from an unreasonable place. I totally hear what you're saying. And and, you know, I am curious to see if he would be willing to wield that kind of power uh, within Biden's administration, um, because as much as I love Bernie, there were so many moments both during the Democratic primary and at the very beginning of the pandemic where he could have really fought hard and effectively and flexed his muscle. And 
the thing that would drive me nuts during the primary was the my friend Joe, my friend Joe, and he's genuinely friends with Joe Biden. Like they disagree ideologically. There's no question about that. Um, but he's got like Bernie's a softy uh, when it comes to Biden. And I well, worry that. Yeah. Then the bigger argument against like the, his independent, you know, firebrand voice in the Senate, like if he's not if he didn't do it uh, in the Democratic primary campaign, you know, like. Is there evidence that he's going to do be it harder, uh, though, in the within future? Biden's administration? I would argue like, oh, no, it would be I harder. Be I'm saying that I'm saying that. No, yeah. of course. No, I, I no, no, no. Uh, let me let me be clear. Like, of course, it'd be harder from within the administration. But he had he did. If you're saying that he didn't do it in the primary. That means that then that stands to reason that maybe he's going to be not as willing to do it from the Senate. You know, so so. Mm-hmm. It's up to us to do it, you know, to, to be that. Yeah, no, I, I totally, um, that's what totally I mean. agree with you on that. Yeah. I mean, um, two- so look, we're sorry, Kale, we're nice. massively out of time. Just know that uh, your super chat questions, your donations, the fact that you've subscribed to this show is, is a big deal. And it really helps us continue doing what we're doing. Thank you so much for watching, guys. Uh, thank you to Nando. Thank you to Kale. Thank you for your questions. Um, you know, the interview went longer than I expected today, but next week I promise we'll be better about um, leaving ample time to answer more of your questions. Um, so thank you again. And Nando, any final words before we go? No, I look forward to next week. Can't wait. Me too. Me too. Um, love you guys. Have an awesome weekend. And we'll see you next week with another episode of Weekends. Weekends.